and a natural fade. <laughs> yeah, that was good work. All right. Uh, well, welcome to what? What are we going to call this? The We Bought a Mic Deep Dive Edition. Yeah, this is something for the Patreon subscribers out there. Yeah, yeah. Not, let's, let's, this is we'll give you a little a little preview, a little taste test. It is. Uh, so yeah, this is. Uh, I'm Drew Dietzen. I have Hunter Mobley here. We are two thirds of the podcast. We bought a mic. Uh, Ernie could not make it, but this is our debut on WNSC uh, UCF Internet Radio, the most popular type of FM radio that there is. I think it might be the most popular type of just of anything. Any, yeah. yeah, it's more popular than music. The most, yeah, the the best kind of media, uh, the most beloved. And so, yeah, on We Bought a Mic, we talk about a lot of different pop culture. You know, we we parse over a lot. We go a little in depth on like our main review for that week or whatever. But today, I we are going to stick to one topic and one topic only. Uh, and I wanted to have Hunter on specifically because you and I love basketball we love the nba it seemed like the netflix algorithm had finally gotten to me you know netflix just has computers that make all of their decisions on products to put out there in the universe and usually it hits a bunch of genres that uh are not quite my cup of tea uh-huh. i understand if people like them but they're not quite made for me but whenever it was announced that steven soderberg a filmmaker who i admire even if his work doesn't always uh come to its full potential Mm -hmm. uh when it was revealed that he was making a film about a labor strike in the nba involving like cba negotiations that's just everything that i could yeah we we were both just kind of like oh dang like that is that hits that really hits for both of us um and on top of that this is written by terrell alvin mccraney who is a playwright who wrote the play that the movie moonlight is based off of so this movie came in hot. Like, it came in with Two pedigree. Oscar winners already yeah. right there. Yeah, and I, I agree about Soderbergh. I mean, it's I think it's almost impossible to like all his stuff because there is so much of it. Like, he's always doing something. He's always doing, like, three things at once. Yeah, he does, like, two or three movies a year. Um, But, yeah, you're right. This is, like, it's like the algorithm finally hit for us. Like, Netflix tends to keep this stuff a little bit under wraps, but very famously... The most famous algorithm uh, product that they produced is House of Cards. That that was back when they were more open about this. And they were basically like, yeah, uh, we saw that people like K-Space. Listen, it was a different they time. They liked K-Space yeah, liked at the time. Yeah, K-Space at the time. Uh, and they also like David Fincher. And the same people that like one like the other. And they also like political dramas. So what if we just combine these three things uh, and the result was like a smash hit for, you know, two or three years. And then afterward, not so much. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but yeah, that is I mean, that's their model. That's how they make. That's how they decide what to make, essentially. And it's smart. Um, it's data driven. It's not just like some dude's vision, <laughs> some CEO's vision who's like yacked out. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it makes sense. And Netflix does this time and time again with they are one of the few uh, companies that out there that are willing to make shows and movies for teenage girls which i mean it might not be our market but it is a market that's out there that is untapped and netflix Mm. they they are kind of geniuses in that aspect exactly um so let's let's get into this movie high flying bird so you 
you touched on it. This is it's about like essentially the NBA. They never use the you know the actual likeness of the NBA because they don't portray it very positively. <laughs> but uh, it's about a professional basketball league that is in the midst of a very long lockout. Which, if you don't know, that is, it's just like any other union strike. That a lockout happens when the owners of whatever the business is cannot come to terms with the uh you know the employees essentially mm-hmm. the employees in this case being the players in the NBA uh so yeah every every year or two there's a collective bargaining agreement that is made in any sports league and that sets the terms for how the money is distributed in that league uh the NBA in like 2011 did have a lockout and there was about half of a season of basketball for that don't quote me on that year it was it was a few years ago it was uh 2011 yeah whenever this all happened and it is actually pretty i mean this is of course a work of fiction high flying bird but you can tell that this was obviously something that deeply fascinated soderberg uh because he displays a lot of uh a lot of what happened the actual lockout pretty accurately to this movie exactly it's 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 extremely like tied to our reality but also future forward it's a i really like this script i think one way i would describe it is this is the best sports movie ever to not have any sports in it yep there's (laughs) there's one scene that's alluding to them actually playing basketball and then you don't even see it which is that's just the almost like it's showing off by Soderbergh. Yeah. He's just like, I don't even need to have sports in my sports movie. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's start with the script that we have here before we get into the filmmaking, because there's a lot to talk about with how this was shot, obviously. Uh, yeah. The script is by Terrell Alvin McCraney. Uh, he is a playwright, and that you that comes across in the writing, because this is very, you know, Sorkin, like David Mamet style scripts of it's very written and it's very dialogue based. Um Micah Peters wrote a great piece for The Ringer that you can find, uh, and it's about how the the sport in this movie is the dialogue. Like, the power shifts, in, like, the competition is all within conversations, uh, and that's a very theater thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, by the end of the conversation, it's like the lead is changing 20 times within every scene. Yep, exactly, and that's what uh, is so masterful about this and not only that uh because i mean bringing in mccraney and soderbergh feels like the perfect marriage because as we all know soderbergh loves to make a good heist movie Mm. and this has all the elements of a great heist movie without an actual heist happening exactly it hits all the exact same beats and i think that big credit for that as well has to go to this cast this cast is uh amazing yeah this i mean the cast really carries the movie because this is an acting heavy movie it's we're not getting like really cinematic shots of sport of basketball being played uh despite basketball being a great uh sport to shoot yeah (laughs) um but yeah andre holland is our lead here he's essentially our our billy ocean um you know what i mean like he's our our charismatic like man who can do it all that we're following as he tries to execute a plan that without spoiling too much kind of resembles a heist but a much more business oriented like legal type of heist like it's not literally stealing but it is uh it, the plot revolves around misdirection on the part of us the audience and the uh the characters aside from Andre Holland uh so yeah it fits so well for Soderbergh to direct this cuz he loves 
He loves keeping things from us. Yep. <laughs> like, he loves having a little secret. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, we will kind of separate this discussion into spoilers and non-spoilers because there is a lot that happens in the third act of this movie. One thing that um, I did, uh, without moving too far away from the script, uh, one choice that I thought was excellent uh, that they made was using real NBA players mm. in this film. Um, yes. I just actually earlier today rewatched this movie for a second time, and that adds so much to have interviews with uh, real NBA players like Carl Anthony Towns, mm. uh, Donovan Mitchell, yeah, like Reggie, Reggie Jackson. Jackson. It's yeah, it and grounds the, it in a way that exactly. pe- that makes it feel like it really does exist in our universe. Well, yeah, it's like a funny way to get around the fact that they couldn't be in the NBA. They just put NBA players in the movie and they were like, yeah, but it's not the NBA, <laughs> but these are NBA players. Yeah. So like throughout the, the movie, like spliced in between scenes are just like very genuine interview clips with NBA players about, uh, you know, what the NBA is like and what it does to your life, your, like your personal life and the business side of it. Uh, and it does, it makes it, it makes it a lot more grounded. It makes it like, hey, this isn't just some sort of, you know, fantasy. This is very close to something that could happen. And in a way, the they do great interviewing, which is they, they will ask a question that kind of almost sets up each act of the movie. Like the movie starts and they talk to them about rookie transition program, which is a thing that actually happens in the league where they kind of bring all the players together and they'll talk to them about – money management, how to handle their own personal lives while they're in the league. Because, I mean, you're taking a lot of kids who are 18, 19, 20 years old and then giving them, hey, here's X million dollars a year to go play a sport. And so a lot of people don't know how to handle themselves with that money, especially because a lot of people don't come from very wealthy backgrounds. It, yeah, exactly. And that this movie plays has a lot of uh, political themes about, you know, going, going from poverty to riches and how jarring that is because it is, it's this, a tragedy that's told again and again in sports. Like for example, someone like Allen Iverson, even, even he, cause the average NBA player, they're only in the league for like two years or something like mm-hmm. that. He made it as high as you can make it. And he still went bankrupt just because once you reach that stage, a, it's part of the culture to just, you know, spend money that you have. Like you want to buy the cars and the houses and everything. And then B, everyone that you've ever known is coming to you and asking you for money. Like it's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. I, Think that one thing, because, I mean, race relations have a huge uh, point to play in this whole story. I feel like what the fundamental uh, question behind this whole movie is summed up in something that Spence, uh, Bill Duke's character, something that he says pretty early on in the film where he says um, there's a reason why the NBA started integrating. Harlem Globetrotters started getting worldwide recognition, and the league thought to themselves, we can control this. We Mm -hmm. can control these black athletes that are out there. Yeah. And it's all about rich white owners trying to find their way to take their cut of the pie from Mm -hmm. the uh, very successful and athletic young black men. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, race and class are, you know, intertwined in ways that can't be separated. And this movie deals with both because of that, particularly in sports, it's an elephant in the room that, you know, if you look at the owners and you look at the players, you start to think is something wrong here. Mm. Um, and that, um, when we get into spoilers, we'll talk about how that resolves in this movie in a, a brilliant way, I think, the very, very end of the movie. But yeah, we have uh, Andre Holland, who is 
um, Bill Duke, who does an amazing job as this like really old, uh, you know, wizened basketball coach for youth um, and like a mentor to Andre Holland. He does a great job of sort of he does a great job of grounding the racial aspects of the story in a way that like brings it down to the like the lower level because we're talking about like rich people for most of this movie like regardless of where they're at andre holland is an agent yeah for like was essentially the equivalent of like caa like the biggest agent sports agency in the country exactly so so bill duke's job in the movie is to ground andre holland and make him remember hey this is why you're doing this like you're, you're doing this to you know rise up not just for you but for all of us uh and that also works for the plot itself it makes you think like this isn't just a movie about an agent doing something for his career. It's a movie about something a lot bigger than that. Uh, really, really smartly done. Also because Bill Duke is amazing. Andre Holland is unbelievable in this. Like, he's so, so good. Yeah, he carries I mean, it. I feel like just because this movie came out so early on in the year, it's going to be completely forgotten, his performance. But I would love to see at least, like, some critics guilds or something at the end of the year give at least some recognition because he carries this movie. Like He does. Pretty, he's in almost every single frame of this movie, like just kind of doing something. And his performance, you can tell where even when things seem completely in disarray, he plays it like he's always in control. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the uh, Ocean's Eleven part. Like yeah. he is George Clooney and he pulls it off easily. Like he, you never for a second are not compelled by what he's doing, even though, like we said, all he's doing is talking. <laughs> this movie is all talk. Um, which, you know, that lends credit to the script, but also you, if, if it's a great script and it's all dialogue and it's poorly acted, it's a bad movie. Yeah. It has to be well acted. And to that point about, uh, great acting, I also feel like you can't, it's just bad filmmaking to make the owners completely unlikable, uh, characters, even though you do completely disagree with them. So instead, they insert Cal McLaughlin, <laughs> who plays this cross between James Dolan, the New York Knicks owner, with a mm. little bit of like David Stern to yeah. him. And his name is David Seaton, which I think is a good play on the David Stern yeah, comparison. They, yeah. We know what you're doing. That um, it's he is so charismatic, even though you don't like him. Like you don't agree with what he's saying. Yeah, you don't like him, but it's really important to me that the the screenwriter like they don't make their villain just transparently evil yeah. like he's not evil he just wants to keep all the money he has yeah like, exactly he, and you can kind of it's it you can't sympathize with him but you can empathize with him you understand at least you're like oh well i get where he's i don't like him but it's not like he's just this impossibly evil guy right because that's when you get into the territory of just a, a cartoon character and like, i mean not a person. and they even talk about because what this whole lockout comes over is how to do revenue splits and his perspective as the uh, kind of the lead rep for all the owners is that we should just make it a 50-50 split down the middle. That's fair to everybody. Not keeping in mind the player side of it that there's a shit ton of more players than there are 30 owners in the league. And there's mm -hmm. always new players coming in every single year. Yeah. So the pie just gets split up so many different ways. Yeah. And that that helps us lead into the next big topic, which is that this movie was shot by Steven Soderbergh 100% on an iPhone seven plus not even an iPhone 10. Yeah. He didn't get like a special <laughs> iPhone 10 a couple years ahead of time. Like this is on an iPhone, a seven plus, uh, and that 
that is my favorite, absolute favorite part of this movie is that the message Soderbergh is trying to send by doing that is the exact same as the message that the movie is trying to send with its script, which is decentralizing power Mm -hmm. from those with money and giving it to the people. Um, because I mean, Soderbergh, he's not just doing this as a flex. He, he's on record as saying, I want to do this to show people that it's, you don't have to have like, even like a like a Canon, even like a thousand dollar DSLR, you don't even have to have that. You just use your phone and you can make a movie. Uh, and then the script obviously is all about how we are we are siding with Andre Holland in this. We're siding yeah. with everyone that's not an owner. So the the message of the script is that the the power needs to go to the masses, not the, those few with the means to like keep it. Um. I, I love that. Like, I, I love that. Yeah, so no, I mean, and it also kind of leads to the theme that Soderbergh always stresses, which is anybody can make it. Like, this isn't 20, 30 years ago, whenever he broke through at Sundance with the likes of Tarantino and Spike Lee, you kind of had to have at least some level of funding. You had to go to film school. Mm-hmm. Soderbergh is saying, now, at this point, if I can do it, yeah, you probably can't get A-list stars to be in your movie, but you can make a compelling story on an iPhone. Just the same way that it doesn't matter what your background is, if you work your ass off at a sport, then you can find a way to break through. Somebody will discover your talent. This is college radio. Don't ever say ass again. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> no, my bad. <laughs> That's for the professors to say. Uh, um. <laughs> don't be a donkey. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's being a little butt. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I have a quote from Soderbergh that I found really interesting, uh, because it's not just about the message he's sending. He actually likes filming with iPhones. Mm. Like, it's not just a matter of like, yeah, screw the rich. He, he said, I want to be rolling as often as possible. The goal in my filmmaking is to be rolling cameras. So I'm on the lookout for things that are getting in the way of that. And he sees, uh, having like humongous camera setups that require multiple people to be on the clock to deal with as something that can sometimes, obviously it can benefit you in tremendous ways, but it also can get in the way of, of shooting the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, two points to that are one, all of the shots that are take place in very confined spaces, like a car or a sauna. These are very enclosed spaces. You can't fit a big old rig unless you build the set yourself, which also Mm. requires lots of money. You don't have to have that when you can have what is gorgeous cinematography just in your pocket. Also, another thing was we get a really, really unique look at New York City in this movie. Unlike anything else I've ever seen, just because – for most filmmakers, if you want to shoot in New York City, you have to get all kinds of permits. You have to do all this kind of stuff. And with this, he can just kind of shoot it from like a second-story building of Andre Holland walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And New York almost looks desolate. Like it looks <laughs> like this – like because you see uh, not the Times Square part of New York, but you see like kind of this more business underbelly of it all. You're right. Which is a very, very unique look. That I don't think I've ever seen in a movie of New York before. Yeah, and I think if I were to guess, I would guess that they shot a lot of the daytime scenes at like 6 or 7 a.m. Yeah. Um, just so they aren't dealing with – because you know you want that like – kind of like yellow orange sunlight especially when you're dealing with natural lighting only which we need to talk about by the way um but yeah that's so they probably shot so early in the morning specifically also to avoid like the rush hour and people like making a scene even though you're not making as big a scene as you would 
Um, but yeah, it's you do get a unique look, and also we we got to talk about the fact that it there's only natural lighting in this entire movie. There is no artificial lighting that is not already built into whatever building they're in or the sun. Mm. Uh, that's crazy. Like. Yeah. What an insane thing to do. <laughs> I, it's just amazing. This is an Oscar-winning director and the fact that he's making these choices. This isn't just like some guy trying to break through on the scene, but he's kind of reinventing himself. I mean, of course, we had last year's Unsane, which I did not see. but Yeah, um, uh, Claire Foy movie, right? Yep, yep. Star- yeah, um, shot by Soderbergh again. Which, uh, yeah, also shot an iPhone, which I will talk about. There are certain points where Soderbergh does try and get a little bit fancy with his angles because he's like, I can do anything with this phone. Oh. I yeah. can stick this phone anywhere. Yeah, we, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, we, we talked about this. There, there, yeah, there are certain shots where you can kind of smell him being like, yeah, that's right. I can put this camera wherever I feel like. I mean, even I, – I feel like there was a purpose behind it. But the first time that we meet Zachary Quinto's character – um, who is uh, Andre Holland's boss in this movie, he's completely shrouded in shadow. And I'm sure that was kind of an intentional thing that you can't really tell what it is, but then again, it's also just all natural lighting coming in. So it wasn't until the end of the scene and like the camera angles moved 14 different times that you're like, is that, is that Zachary Quinto right there? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. And he looks a little... He looks a little beefier nowadays. Yeah, he's. I don't. Is Zachary Quinto doing okay? I don't. I mean, he's not like he's uh, Chris Pine. Yeah, we're talking Star Trek guys <laughs> who, who busted out. Uh, but yeah, it, he is shrouded in darkness. A few scenes in the movie, I was kind of ho- wanting a little more light. <laughs> um, but I guess the thing is. If you're really committing to doing natural lighting, you can't have, like, three scenes that have artificial light. Yeah, because then it would stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, Mm -hmm. and this movie is mostly shot in well-lit office buildings, so it's not like it's a thing that's a frequent problem. Yeah. Now, as far as the script does go and, like, how it is shot, I do... Like at first I was like, oh, it's really, it's really cool and interesting and like a flex that there's no basketball in this. But then I thought about it and I was like, well, this movie's 90 minutes. You know, if we had 10 minutes of street ball, I would, I would like that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, it almost feels like he's making more of a statement because this is a, a light spoiler that we'll get into, but, um, they have a whole argument about TV rights. And who has the rights to actually air TV. This is actually a discussion that's happening right now. Yeah. Is companies like Netflix, Hulu, even uh, something pay-per-view getting the rights to air kind of their own little uh, private showings of basketball. And so, I mean, we just had it with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson having a pay-per-view golf event. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Oh, that was weird. Yeah. Which that was really That weird. was completely <laughs> – that was not the best. And it, it didn't go well, yeah. I mean, think if – Zion Williamson, the star recruit from Duke who's coming out next year, if he said, hey, I'm going to host my own dunk contest, and if you pay $5, then you can – or $20, you can watch it with mm-hmm. other recruits that are coming out, I would buy that. Yeah. I feel like lots of people would buy that. If LeBron James was like, hey, I'm going to have a three-on-three tournament over the summer this year. Oh, yeah. People would buy that in a heartbeat. Yeah, that would be amazing. And, like, even – 
you know, you hear stories uh, in the off season, for example. I don't know if he still does, but a few years ago, Kevin Durant would just kind of drop in at Rucker Park mm-hmm. in uh, New York and yep. just play some street games. Or Kyrie Irving would do his whole. That's where his whole Uncle Drew persona came out, where he dresses oh, like yeah. an old man and then goes and yeah, yeah, balls yeah. out on some little kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the the like the Durant. Uh, because the, the Kyrie, you know, Uncle Drew was made to be viral. Like, it was, it, it was, was produced to be it viral. It was all a Sprite commercial. But, like, even when someone like Durant or Harden goes to Rucker Park and does that, some random person will shoot it on an, on their iPhone, and it will get millions of views. So it's so natural for, like, you know, an Andre Holland type, a sports agent, to think, well, how do I get in on that? Like, this is... People love watching street ball. It's more fun than the NBA <laughs> because there are less rules and it's more about like, you know, being flashy and right. like disrespect and like, all the fun stuff about the NBA. Um, so, yeah, it, it, the script made so much sense thinking just a little bit into the future. Like it's like the black mirrors that don't go like way too far mm-hmm. into the future. It's like the ones that are just like like five years from now. Um, and those tend to be my favorites because it is so obvious if you really think about it yet it required imagination to conceive um i love that balance i really like i got to give a lot of credit to terrell alvin mccraney he must be a basketball fan or just well read (laughs) i i feel like it's a mix of both because (laughs) i don't think he writes about this uh i was actually after i watched this movie the first time i did research on the collective bargaining agreement that the NBA signed, <laughs> which isn't something that I ever would have thought that I would yeah. dive that in that much further into than I already knew about. But this is obviously something that he wrote with a sense of passion. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, obviously the, uh, the themes that he gets into, he's extremely passionate about like, you know, race relations and how they intersect with sports. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's well engineered on his part, like this whole script, because, Without spoiling too much, it the you know the crux of the plot depends on Andre Holland uh, deciding if he wants to like try to start a new type of league, like not necessarily a new NBA, but just a new thing that uh, players are able to have more stake of ownership in. Um, and that is like literally like you said a discussion that happens like all the time we in uh there is a new football league right now yeah called the aafl that the, shout out to the orlando apollos yeah <laughs> coach uh steve spurrier still kicking it <laughs> man yeah i hope he's uh, not gonna like have a heart attack on the field he's really old <laughs> but um yeah that i mean that league wasn't made with the intention in mind of like giving more power to the players in fact it probably gives less power to the players because they're less paid and they're it's allowed to you're allowed to just give someone a concussion in this league um <laughs> but i mean there are like uh, twofold one i feel like people are still liking it like i work at a place where we have TVs up that people can ask for stuff. And this past Saturday, people were like, hey, keep on the Orlando Apollos game. Yeah. Because people want to see football. People want to see basketball. Yeah. Like, they're and willing to watch it. Like, I can almost see if the NFL gets mad at this league, I could almost see them trying to figure something out with college because right now the NFL and college run concurrently this, the seasons. So, like, half the year, there's just no football. There's no competition in this market right now. 
Um, so it, it makes so much sense for there to be just another league that takes maybe former players like Denard Robinson or just people who just didn't get drafted. Because if you know anything about the NCAA, like 99% of college athletes do not go pro in their sport. Yeah. Um, and that is like a moral quandary when they're, they also don't get paid in college for their sport. Uh, so it makes so much sense. Even in the NBA, there's the G League, which is directly, you know, it's a subsidiary league of the NBA. Like, it's owned by the NBA as, like, a training ground, like a proving ground to see if you can move up to that big league. But even that is starting to get a fan base. Yeah. And, I mean, I feel like another – I don't want to move too far away off of uh, High Flying Bird, but you kind of can't talk about this movie without talking about – the wider NBA as a whole. Yeah. And I feel like one thing that's really helping this movie that is damaging to a sport like football or baseball is that basketball is a 365 a day a year sport. Like there's, there really is no off season. Some people like are more interested in the off season of the NBA than they are in the actual season, which I feel like is why a movie like this, that is about the business, uh, workings of the sport. Mm hmm can still be a great movie that will still get lots of people on Netflix to watch. Yeah, and, and in particular, basketball has a constant grappling of power between players and owners because uh, with a sport like football, you have your marketable quarterbacks, and they do make a ton of money, but there are also like 52 other guys on that roster who don't get paid that much, and we don't really know most of their names. With NBA basketball, there are 12 men on a roster – and like if whether you're like watching it on TV or on the court, you can see their faces yeah, and you know them, even the little guys like I can I can name guys on Orlando Magic's bench like and it feels like you know them better than, you know, any NFL player. Right. Just because of the helmets aspect of it and the fact that pretty much every time that there's a news story outside of football about a football player, it's usually sad. Yeah, it's usually like a really yeah. bad thing. <laughs> or sometimes with basketball players, it's just like stupid funny stuff that yeah, happens with them yeah i mean it's you know this movie obviously paints the nba in a negative light because it should be in a lot of ways painted negatively but it's also the best league to be a star in yeah um because they do give a lot of uh leeway and i don't think that this it doesn't come completely clean on it being just a total negative thing yeah, in the league it, it does not. it i mean it does show the ways in which Basketball can change people's lives forever. I mean, we have uh, two the two lead uh, young basketball men who we have in this movie. Um, young basketball men, <laughs> Eric Scott. That's and, what uh, they should have J- called it. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Scott, uh, who is Andre Holland's uh, agent or I, his client. Yeah, his client. Excuse me. And uh, Jameer Umber are two people who are both drafted by the New York Knicks who uh, drafted in the same class, and they have this rivalry with each other despite being on the same team because they haven't actually had a chance to practice with each other because mm-hmm. of this lockout. But Jamira Umber is from an obviously well-off family. Um, he seems to kind of have a good upbringing. His mom is his agent and everything else. Yeah. Has a little bit of uh, Lavar Lamarcus all ball. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a Lavar ball thing where his mom is controlling every aspect of his life, and he, you know, he comes, he's decently well off. This this is another uh, thing that's yeah they talk about a lot in the movie because there is a culture clash in the NBA between the people, you know, the prep school kids who their whole life it's like you're going to be a basketball player. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and the people versus who, somebody who's more of a street ball background. Like a lot of people have compared Eric Scott in this movie to Kevin Durant, mm. which is honestly that's a pretty apt comparison. Whenever you consider like social media presence, kind of almost. Uh, naivety to yeah. uh, their actual actions yeah, and yeah. what the consequences of said actions will be that, at least in the media uh, side of it all. Yeah, Durant's been in the league for like 15 years and he still doesn't realize sometimes <laughs> you just need to like not Yeah, sometimes you just don't just need to like <laughs> shut up But I mean it's, I, I like that about him. A lot of, you know, he gets a lot of flack and some of it is rightful uh, some of the time he really stirs the pot in ways that are not good for his team, but it's fun for us. Listen, I we like drama. Yeah. Like, it's all it's... <laughs> part of the experience. Like it's all it's like pro wrestling except it's real. Like these people have real beefs with each other. Um so yeah, so, <laughs> I never, I've actually never heard the Ke- Kevin Durant. Yeah, comparison. but it's that's it, really funny. You know, as soon as I heard it, I was like, you know, that really that makes a lot of sense yeah. when you kind of consider their backgrounds. Um, do you kind of want to get into a little bit of spoilers or? Yeah, let's. Do you have go... anything else you wanted to hit on before that? Um, no, yeah. Overall, this is a really interesting movie. Partic- ca- we didn't even hit everybody in the cast. Zazie Beetz oh, is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, we do. Yeah, she's amazing. She plays like the assistant of Andre Holland, who ends up, you know, with more agent like more agency as a character than anybody really she's mm-hmm. she's an uh, i mean she's a great actress we obviously we love to see her in anything uh she's from atlanta if you don't know um, the show atlanta not the city um <laughs> she's, yeah, she's from atlanta <laughs> yeah. uh sanja son as myra mm. um is basically kind of the nba players association represent representative Mm -hmm. arguing on the player side kind of the counter to the kyle mclaughlin character Mm -hmm. um i did kind of want to get into a little bit nitpick things yeah uh spoilers yeah there are a couple problems with her whole background that's in there but i I, yeah i do not want to yeah i don't want to like act like this is a perfect movie it's i don't think this is a perfect movie it's uh, it's not going to be like my favorite of the year, for example. I can tell you that right now. Yeah, it's not going to be. And I know that this movie isn't for everybody, especially if you have no interest in sports yeah. <laughs> or the inner workings of it, then I don't really know how much you'll like this movie. Well, I know that, like, for example, our our third, who is not here with us today, Ernest, mm-hmm. is not a sports fan whatsoever. Yeah. Um, he watches the World Cup once every four years, but that's about it. Um, I hope he's not offended by me saying these things. Hey, we can but, we can talk some crap about Ernest. Oh, yeah. yeah finally. <laughs> um, but he still seemed to enjoy it. But I have seen a lot of people complain when there's like they're talking about a bunch of things about sports. I saw a really good uh, uh, post on Letterboxd that uh, it was a woman who um, – I can't remember exactly her name, but somebody who I follow on Box, somebody who I really admire, but she said that if I wanted to just listen to a bunch of men talk about sports inner workings for an hour and a half, I would just listen to my boyfriend and his friends talk. Which is... Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that's reductive, obviously, but there is a point there. My, uh, I watched this with my girlfriend. She did say it, it was a lot of jargon. Yeah. E- even if you're into sports and it's, it's accurate lot. jargon. Yeah. It's, it's an... all like very, it's not just like, yeah thermo combustors like it actually yeah, is yeah. real things that they're talking about but it can still just be a lot of stuff yeah even if you're into sports like us some you just have to be a, like able to absorb the script and like be like all right i don't know that what that term meant but we're just moving on uh if you if you really are bothered by not understanding like a line or two this is not the movie for you because i i'm pretty sure like no matter how much you like sports there are a couple things that go over your head unless you're 
Andre Holland, unless you're an agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that that could be seen as a flaw. Um, like I said, I it, you know it would have been cool to see some basketball. Obviously, that's when uh, actual film or not even film, but like digital uh, movie cameras have an advantage in shooting action. Um, yeah, and said the only little snippets of basketball we see are like kids at this local uh, game that take iPhone footage, which is kind of like what you were talking about with people just getting iPhone footage of Kevin yeah. Durant at Rucker Park. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it would have been nice to see that, but I think we would have really seen the iPhone part if we were to see, like, actual basketball action. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot of walk and talks. If you're into Sorkin, you're going to like this movie, uh, you know, because it's written by a playwright. It's not just like this guy's copying Sorkin. They're both just writing plays, yeah. <laughs> kind of. Um, and that's not an insult. If you're into that type of dialogue, like like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel style. Yeah, super, super snappy. Yeah, yeah, quick. Uh, everyone is extremely well-spoken and well, you know, well-written uh, and well-rehearsed, kind of. It's like the best kind of a Sorkin script, where Sorkin can sometimes make uh, the most, like, bumbling idiots sound like geniuses, and it really <laughs> only works in, like, a... Like certain situations, like all the president's men, social network, where it's actually smart people and they're allowed to talk smart. Yeah, yeah. But it also doesn't work sometimes. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so it's mostly you know you get a lot of walking dialogue, you get a lot of great looking shots, but it is di- shots of talking. Yeah. Um. So if you would get bored by that, which I cannot fault anybody for getting bored by that, like that's that's a matter of pure preference. Some people, when they see a go movie, go watch your Captain Marvels. Okay. Okay. Let's <laughs> go watch your blue beams in the sky. We're going to watch Captain yeah, Marvel. Are, so you know, can't yeah. say that. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, but yeah, I, I can't fault you if you don't like the movie, but I think that this is overall a good movie. Like this is a solid effort on everyone's part that is involved with the movie. Yeah. I, I see the seams, but that did not, prevent me from loving this movie any less i really did love this movie um this is i mean we are almost to the end of the second month so it's very early on but this is my favorite movie i've seen this year um it's up there for me yeah we haven't seen many we movies. haven't seen a ton of us. it's it's better than alita battle angel <laughs> sorry I, well oh god that's tough i didn't compare that one to it but <laughs> no i i really did love this movie i think this is one of my favorite soderbergh movies i've seen years i actually like this a little bit more than logan lucky mm. um I'm, it's just kind of it it just hit me right in the spots where i wanted to yeah be we just yeah this we we are the demographic here yeah um so yeah, I I think that I would recommend this to a lot of people, but some people I wouldn't. It's like we said, if this sounds like something you're interested in, you will like it. And yeah. if it doesn't, then you won't like yeah. it. Like it's totally it's, pretty, it's not going to convince you. There are certain movies You're wh- not going to watch this yeah. movie and be like, "You know what? I think I'm going to check out this whole basketball thing." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think I should like watch sports now. No, it's it's not like that, but it is it is enough to keep you interested if you're already semi-interested in the mm-hmm. topic. Um so yeah, the, uh, oh also I want to say the reported budget of this movie is 2 mil uh which is low for a good movie. <laughs> yeah, I, do you think that was like just pretty much to the cast? Well, yeah, Soderbergh gets a paycheck. Yeah. Uh that's that's involved even though he is involved. He does self-finance a lot of the time. Well, this one because he's kind of been out 
talking about this can kind of be the last note that we hit before we get to spoilers but he tried to self-produce his last couple movies with logan lucky and unsane Mm -hmm. uh, because he basically said that he found a bunch of faults with the marketing team because marketing teams claim that they have to have like 10 to 20 million dollars a year just or 10 to 20 million dollars per project Mm -hmm. just to market the film to get Mm -hmm. people to go out and see it and he was like well i see a lot of inefficiencies here so i'm going to just market the movie myself and do it for a fraction of the cost and it did not work. Turns out that <laughs> production studios have been doing something right over yeah. the last well, hundred plus years of making movies. Because Unsane was a theatrical release movie, strictly. It right? was. It was not um, a streaming movie. So the the whole game changes when you're on Netflix. Yeah, because he kind of realized that there was a problem with that. So instead, he didn't just completely revert back to going back to a production studio. He was like, all right, well... Netflix seems to be getting something right. We don't know how many people have seen this movie, but I guarantee you it's several million people. It's more people have seen this movie than people have seen Unsane. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, the marketing budget goes out the window. Like there are, Netflix does have television commercials now, but the best marketing in the world is when you get on Netflix and it's the first thing you see because Netflix can control what the main tile screen is. Like that's a better commercial than a commercial because you're actively watching it to like look for something to watch. You're not just like, uh, you know, OxyClean, uh, Unsane, like (laughs) Burger King. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's the focus of exactly what and you want to see. And it's right there. Yeah. It's, you can just click play and you're in. Yeah. So basically right if you, if you make something and Netflix trusts you as a filmmaker, which they're going to trust Steven Soderbergh, <laughs> he's like one of the, you know, he's one of the top three biggest uh, people they have signed right now. Like it, you don't have to market it. Like he, he's all about efficiency. He's all about disrupting things. Like mm. he's always doing some weird He's so fun to read about because he's, this is he's such always a, doing the weirdest stuff. I mean, the more that you know about Soderbergh, the more you can view this film from a meta aspect and what Andre Holland's character is essentially Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he, he's such a fascinating guy. Like he is he's spinning like 20 plates at once and he has been for like the past 25 years. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. And he, he made and he's traffic pushing. and Aaron Brockovich, two movies that were nominated, got him nominated for best director in the same year. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like that's, <laughs> that's two completely different movies. Yeah. And even though you could, you could argue that that was his peak, obviously, because how can you, how can you beat that? He's, con- he's been consistently like, he will make some noise every couple of years. Yep. Every couple of years, you'll hear, "Oh, Soderbergh did something, and it's good." I like. I really like Logan Lucky. I know you're a little bit lower. I mean, I still really enjoyed it. It's yeah. you know the white trash Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, and it's but it's not like that movie was trying to be a blockbuster, right? Like that was a more niche movie, I would say. But yeah, uh, th- this is an admirable movie. Like it's mm. it's challenging to watch. It was challenging to make. It was challenging to write and conceive of. Um, but yeah, we do need to get into spoilers because there are a couple of key points that we couldn't, uh, ruin. Uh, so let's, let's do that. Uh, you know, I would say just hang around, but honestly, just, just turn it off. If you don't want to hear spoilers, they're not like egregiously like important, but you don't, I don't think you want, if you're going to watch it, you don't want to know. Yeah, I would say so. Um, if you have not seen it and you want to turn it off, feel free to find the full feed of this at We Bought a Mic later on. I wonder get, if this get a quick plug in. I wonder if this is allowed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't um, know. But yeah, listen. Yeah, if you're a freshman in the math lab right now doing <laughs> doing college algebra, 
uh, get on your phone, get on your podcast app, search We Bought a Mic. We are we are so much fun. <laughs> yeah, we're just, if you just want to come hang out with the boys. Yeah, and we are unrated on the pod. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, listen to We Bought a Mic. We've already talked about this movie, but we- What co- happens if people just like are tuning in whenever we're already in the spoilers and they're in the math lab? Yeah. Well, listen, sorry, bud, but we got to talk about it. So right. let's just get into it right now. Um. Thanks for listening if you're leaving. I don't think any- I don't think I think we might just be off air. I think I don't think anybody's <laughs> But it'll be on the pod feed, so um welcome to the pod listeners. <laughs> um so yeah, the w- I alluded to the fact that this is kind of a heist movie but set in the business world and with no actual theft. Uh the heist here is Andre Holland uh convincing everyone that he wants to start a new basketball league that's centered around like 1v1 streetball matches and he convinces even his client of this he convinces like everyone around him of this concept and the entire time he does not actually intend to do this at any point uh he just he wants to make a lot of noise and end the lockout and because he does that he knows that he'll get a promotion at work um, because like that's an unbelievably complex scheme <laughs> to end a lockout. Yeah, um, there's a couple of uh, ideas behind here because he seems like he's just such a genius and has this whole thing planned out. Why did it take him six months to actually enact this plan? I guess I mean he probably just came up with it like on the fly and then it was just like yeah got this. he was he's at work he's like he's starting to like really bleed money because of this lockout. This is a long lockout yeah. compared to most lockouts in pro sports. This is what you said. Six months. Yeah. Eight months. About, I think it's five months, but after uh, they have like their last meeting before the end of the year and it was going to go into month number six. Yeah, exactly. So, so he's got this, these two clients on the same team and he's, he's kind of noticing that they might be beefing a little bit. He has Eric who's like, you know, he's a little, uh, a little stinker on social media. And he, yeah, I think just at that point he's like, Oh, I know what I can do. Um, and this again, like this is like, it's kind of like any Sorkin type thing. It's like wishful thinking for how smart people are. Yeah. Like this is a genius idea and it works. Yeah. And I mean, I think that one of the best parts about the movie, which is something that I didn't even like really catch the first upon first viewing is there's a point when he is, uh, when Kyle McLaughlin is there talking with the other owners and the owners find out about this whole thing with Andre Holland's character with uh, Ray about how he's organizing this new league and it gets revealed that they're actually going to have another street ball competition in Vegas that night that mm-hmm. or you can buy courtside tickets on StubHub for like $1,200 mm-hmm. and Kyle McLaughlin says something along the lines of uh, don't worry we already made sure that Ray's not behind this and he's just like you know that that's the worst possible news because that means yeah. that it's not just him coming up with these ideas. Other people are doing the exact same thing, and they're all going to take away players it, from the NBA. Yeah, exactly. He is he's starting a conversation. Basically, he is he's not intending at any point to be the you know the actual commissioner of an actual right. league, but he is starting a movement that will scare the NBA into starting basketball again because then all the players will be like, all right, we're just going to go back to our jobs. Yeah. Um, Again, a brilliant plan. Really fun to watch it unfold. Um, I'm trying to like recollect my level of understanding of his plan at certain points. Um, I, I always knew that obviously he had a plan, um, like that he was doing something that was above our heads a little bit. Um, and then at a certain point, like probably two thirds through the movie, you know totally what he's doing. I yeah. think. Um, however, there is a press conference scene where it's like a cl- one of the, a classic press conference where he like he starts like stuttering his words and then he's like. 
No, you know what? I am the Batman. Yeah, he, literally, yeah. <laughs> He's like, I am the one who who staged this beef between these two players, which then went viral, which got, you know, people talking. Um, and now, if you want to see what I'm doing next, I'm going to stage a game between these two guys. You know? Yeah. Uh, and at that point, it's unclear to the audience, like, if he really was, co- like, coming up with that on the spot or if he just had that planned the whole time. Because if you think about it, he had to have it planned yeah. that he was going to say well, that. Well, and also to that point, so before that even happens, um, because I, as upon rewatching it and stuff, I will say this is a deeply rewatchable movie, like mm-hmm. some of the best Soderbergh movies. It's complicated. The scene that he has in the spa with Cal McLaughlin happens before that press conference. Mm. That happens about like 35, 40 minutes into the movie. We still mm-hmm. have over half the movie to go. And you can tell that's when the wheels are already starting to click. Mm-hmm. When Cal McLaughlin and him have this whole big confrontation about how you have to get the players back out there. Like, yeah. you, it's not gonna, you guys are millionaires. You guys are billionaires. You're going to be fine with this. Even the players that have been in here, the LeBron James, the Kevin Durant, they're going to be fine. They've already been making their money. They're going to be okay. It's the new, the rookies that are haven't gotten that big paycheck yet that went out, bought a new car, had to move cities, pay their rents and everything else. They're the ones that are getting hurt by this, not the stars. The movie starts with Andre Holland just undressing his client, like in public, just talking talking mad crap about how he he took this loan and it was the dumbest idea. Um, And that's, I mean, to start the movie with that is like, yeah, the message here is that we we perceive everyone involved with the NBA as just being untouchably rich, and they're not. Like JJ Redick has talked about this, and it was really interesting. Like his his uh, siblings once like used his credit card, and they like saw his balance accidentally, and they were like, "Oh, like you're you're not rich yet. Like it doesn't just you don't just get a check for your whole contract yeah. at once. It's in installments, and you have to live somewhere, and you have to like have." Like, you could live in, like, a, a crappy place, but if you're in the NBA, there's an expectation. There's like, an expectation and also kind of a safety factor where you can't just be, like, in the hood somewhere with your spot just because people know that even if you don't have that money yet that you're going to have your money. And there are leeches in this world that will try and take yeah. that from you. And, and if you come from, like, a lower class background, you there is, like an installment system that just automatically you have to just kind of start like, Hey, I need to get my mom a house. Like right now, like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there are certain things that are not negotiable. If you get really paid and your family is poor, like right. it, it's just a moral thing. Um, so yeah, we get into this whole thing, like, but yeah, this movie is, it's about deception. And that's, that's why I really loved it. Like mm-hmm. every character is at a different level of understanding of what's going on, except Andre Holland. He is our all knowing entity. Um, even we are, at times confused about at what level is he really staging this? Like we knew, for example, uh, that he staged that one-on-one, like, you know what I mean? It wasn't told to us, but we knew that he did that. We could just, we figured it out. But after that, you know, did he at any point plan to start a new league? No, I don't think he did. And I mean, really the person, the most victimized person in this entire movie is Eric Scott, unfortunately for him, because he is the ultimate pawn that is being played in this game and just kind of being moved around. Even right before the press conference, we have a moment where he's just like, I'm going to save this. I'm going to get you back out there on the court. We're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And then just goes up on the press conference and is like, no, actually he's going to come join my new league now. And Eric Scott's (laughs) like, wait, what? What are we doing? What? Yeah. Eric Scott is, is, yeah, they mess with him a lot. (laughs) Um, But you know, when, at the end of the movie, when he reveals his master plan to what's his name, 
man, I, I don't even know the freaking the guy's name. Uh, to Mr. Star Trek, to Mr. Spock. Uh, Zachary Quinto. Yeah, man. To Chris Pine's brother. Uh, <laughs> when he reveals his master plan is when we finally get the full picture of, oh, this was all, like, he's playing everybody right now, particularly Eric Scott. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, he got Eric Scott's job back. He got his paycheck back. He used him, and it's immoral, but there is at least a conversation about whether the ends justify the means. Um, you know what I mean? And... Yeah. As far as his company goes, like he he outlines to Zachary, he's like, I didn't even he didn't even like drop our agency. He just dropped me and switched to a different agent. Yeah. So literally, they didn't even lose him as a client. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's like, I brought back our main source of revenue without losing any clients. Like it, it's a great reveal when you really because like you know what he's doing, but like the way he uh, the way it's written, like the big picture is really outlined in like one paragraph. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I um. Uh, I did have a couple more. It was a nit to pick and an interesting uh, observance that I had. Interesting observance first. Upon um, rewatch, Carl Anthony Towns, uh, they're talking about, you know, bumping heads with teammates, everything, right before we get the whole uh, Twitter mm. war between Umber and uh, Scott. Yeah. And Carl uh, Anthony Towns speaks out. He's just like, yeah, you know. Sometimes you just get out there and you really like bump heads with your teammates and everything else. I thought that was a little bit of a Jimmy Butler dig. <laughs> That's what I took that as. That's funny. I was just like, oh yeah, he is with. He did used to play with like one of the most headstrong people in that's, the league. That's true. Um, and I wanted to know: Does Myra's lesbian love story and desire to have kids does that work for you? Did that work uh, for you? I mean, it was the most underdeveloped thing in the whole uh, story for sure. Like. We don't... Just because we have one drink between uh, Andre Holland and her, and suddenly we're like, "Yeah, I get her." As a her, her, yeah, her character is. I didn't. I I thought that she was the weakest character. I mean, I thought Sonja Stone did a great job of yeah, playing it. Yeah, she's like, a she... she's a great actress, and there are great ideas being played with there, but she falls somewhere in between like hero and villain as far as like moving our plot forward goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not sure at different points whether we're supposed to like her. <laughs> well, because she also, I mean, yes, she's representing the players, but she's also still using them as pawns. Like, it's not her livelihood that's going to be affected by a further lockout. Yeah. And then and she's still going to be getting her checks. Like, yeah. And then when she refuses to say Bill Dukes, uh, his required yeah, phrase. Yeah. That was one of my favorite aspects of this whole movie is mm -hmm. I love the Lord and all of his black children. Yeah. It, yeah. And when she doesn't say that, I was like, you you suck. You have to you have <laughs> you to say have to that. Say it. Um. Anyway, so the the movie ends with uh Zazi Zazi Beats reading a book called, or at least like you know skimming a book called The Revolt of the Black Athlete, uh, which is by a guy named James Edwards. This is a real book, and she says to Eric Scott, she's like, "Oh, you have to read this." And then it's revealed that Andre Holland's character is meeting with James Andrews, this real person. Uh, and then the movie ends. So that's that's one that you have to look up unless you're really well versed in this stuff. Um, so James Andrews is a sociologist uh, in California whose entire career has been focused on the experiences of African American athletes, um, and he's a, a strong advocate of uh, black participation in the management of the NBA in particular. Like that's mainly what he's about, and that ties the movie together in a really nice little bow for me you know 
Um, because it explains why Andre Holland made the choice he made. Well, I mean, yeah, if you I saw like a thing I noticed on Letterbox that or on uh, Netflix, whenever you go and you look at the tags for this movie, it's like basketball, sports, uh, drama, stuff like that, and then it's like fight the power is like one of the tags. Oh, for really? It, which is. Not really something that comes across until the end of the movie. I mean, there's a little bit of like fighting the power with the owners and everything else like yeah, that. Yeah. But the way that that book is used to tie the story together and like this neat bow works mm-hmm. excellently. Exactly. Well, because you could view Andre Holland's end point as like selfish. And that's how I initially did. I was like, oh, he did all this for a promotion. But it's all about empowering yeah. like, black it, men to stand up for themselves. Because even if they don't realize that they're doing it, mm-hmm. but still having that sense of self-worth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it makes it so it, it wasn't a selfish choice by him. Mm-hmm. It was a very big picture choice to empower his race by being more powerful individually. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, that's what James Edwards is all about. Uh he, there's a quote from uh, a website I was reading about him. He has seen himself as one who provokes and incites others to action, a reformer, not a revolutionary. The revolutionary move for Andre Holland is to start the new league. The reformer move is to keep the NBA going and move up. And obviously this guy is a wheeler and a dealer. Eventually he could just move into ownership. Right. Like, or at least move into administration, like instead of representing the players. Um, I thought that was brilliant. Like that yeah. was, I mean, and that's, that's where like the playwright side of this writing comes in because it's a beautiful little knot. And it does, it kind of ties back into that quote that was from Bill Duke from Spence's character early in the movie where he's just like about why did the NBA choose to integrate? It was for control. What they're doing is taking that control back. Mm-hmm. That's what this whole play is. I mean, I think that that's excellently well said by him that it's not he's not revolutionary he's a reformer because it's just about it's not about tearing down the old system it's about changing it and taking the control and redistributing the power Mm -hmm. and i mean yeah it's totally brilliant um in particular the book the revolt of the black athlete the description is this book is the still essential study of the conflicts at the interface of sport race and society that's what the whole movie is about um I would, I mean, I almost think that, um, Terrell McCraney read this book and then wrote this, like, yeah. that was his starting point almost. Uh, it's, it's extremely smart. Like Andre Holland's character all of a sudden becomes almost a stand in for James Edwards, not what he does, but his point of view. Um, and a lot of the time I, I get kind of bothered when you have to look up the end of a movie, but this was so, such a straightforward answer. Once you look it up (laughs) and I'm sure that it's an added plus like for any viewer that you learn about this research, you know what I mean? Like it's something that obviously Terrell McCraney wants us to know about. Yeah. Yeah. He wants us to be thinking about this. But this isn't something, it isn't something where you have to do your homework in order to get the ending. I mean, I, I've, I did not have a knowledge of what this uh, book was that it was based on before. And, but you just see him kind of open it up. Andre Holland keeps referring to this as, a Bible, not mm-hmm. the Bible, but it is a Bible mm-hmm. that, and uh, you just see, um, what's it called? The revolt of the black athlete. Mm-hmm. And just that title alone kind of tells you a little bit about what the message is. And then you actually read about it and it adds even more it embellishes the story. Can I tell you something? I totally forgot that he gives that book to him in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gives it to a very first scene of the movie. Yeah, he he gives, gives him that book and he's just carrying it around and like, 
you'll open it. You'll know when the time is yeah. right for you to open it. It's at the very end when he actually takes some control of his own life when mm-hmm. he fires Andre Holland and he uh, starts to have a little bit more self-worth for yeah. himself. And speaking of good playwriting, if you introduce a gun in the first act, you fire it in the third act. <laughs> yeah, Literally, that's, like, that's, that's awesome. That's playwriting 101. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean that, that made the movie a lot better for me, honestly, when, when it ended and you, the motives change, but the intent of the movie doesn't change. I thought it was perfect. Um, but yeah, we're, we're at about an hour. Um, I'd say, you know, personally, another incredible job by me and you. Yeah. Just the two, the two lead men of We Bought a Mic carrying it home again. Yeah. You know, the two future FM stars. (laughs) We're going to bring it back. I want to come back on here so we can just actually talk real basketball. Cause oh yeah, well, I mean we're allowed to do that, and we are. Let me tell you, we're well versed. Hunter's wearing a blog boy t-shirt. I'm wearing right a now. blog boy. Shout out to the ringer. That's a deep cut basketball yeah, reference. It right is there. like we <laughs> we know our stuff. This movie, I mean, that's why we're so interested in this movie. Uh, but again, even if you're not insanely interested in basketball, I think this movie is worth checking out. Uh, you know, next week I'll be back on, I'll do another deep dive into some other stuff. Uh, not sure what yet, but it's going to be like this. It's going to be a full hour about one thing. And then for, uh, more surface level, uh, like coverage of just like a lot of different things. And also the depth we bought a mic M I C on any podcast not m-i-k-e that's a different those those are arrivals yeah no we didn't buy a michael yeah (laughs) never would never have yeah um but yeah uh so subscribe to that uh if you're already on there (laughs) Ernest, maybe just cut this part out (laughs) no it'll stay in there yeah that's we don't edit that's up to the editor but i i'm pretty sure we have a freeform style if you will of just not editing yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. And thanks for listening. Uh, find or where, where else can we find you on the internet, Drew? Oh, I'm on uh, Twitter at Drew Dietzen, D-I-E-T-Z-E-N. I'm I'm popping off on the daily. Uh, I'm on Letterboxd at Drew D. I post uh, often reviews, sometimes very short, but always uh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, where are you? Um, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hunt H U N T. Mobley, M-O-B-L-E-Y. That's H-U-N-T, M-O-B-L-E-Y. Don't know yeah. why I said it like that. I'm actually going to ma- make those pauses longer when I edit. <laughs> also, uh, you can check out my website, huntmobley.com. Mm. I'm having some Oscar stuff. Going to post some more Oscar stuff yeah. later today, and we are, actually. And we're like on the way over to Ernie's place to record our Oscar predictions episode of We Bought a Mic, yeah, so, so stay tuned for that. It might come out the exact same day that this one comes out. Probably will. Um, so. But yeah, thanks thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, Ernest, guess what, buddy? You're expendable now. Yeah. We, we, don't, we don't like you. We don't need you. We're leaving you. WNSC is our new mother we were, now. We were never friends with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, just kidding. We love you, Ernest. Please keep uh, editing and doing all the important stuff while we just mess around. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for ch- checking it out and see you next week, Wednesday at three, three 30. No, just, I, just keep it on this song. I don't I, know what it is, just, but I like it. Fun.